People in the southeastern United States and Caribbean are still recovering from storms like Maria, Irma, and Harvey. And they're not just rebuilding. Many are dealing with unseen damage. The National Center for PTSD says that while the majority of people affected by these kinds of disasters have the resilience to recuperate, there are still many others who will develop psychological disorders afterward. Welcome to the Got Science Podcast. I'm your host, Colleen McDonald. If you live in an area where the impacts of climate change are at your doorstep, you'll want to listen to today's podcast. We're talking about the mental health effects of climate change. And after the interview, stick around for This Week in Science History with Katie Love. Here at the Union of Concerned Scientists, we try to make the consequences of climate change very clear. That includes connecting the dots with weather events people are already experiencing. Like, yes, the flood that destroyed your car when your street flooded at high tide was clearly and conclusively exacerbated by climate change and sea level rise. Or yes, the heat wave that sent temperatures into the hundreds in your city for days was made more likely by climate change. So drought, hotter temperatures, flooding, crop failure, more extreme storms, these are all the visible signs of climate change. But what about the toll climate change takes on something more subtle and less simple to quantify, our mental health? It turns out that global warming has all kinds of mental health consequences, from the stress caused by extreme weather to the feeling of hopelessness about a hotter, more polluted future. To help explore how climate change can really mess with our heads, I interviewed Dr. Joel Nigg, a licensed clinical psychologist and professor at Oregon Health and Sciences University. At OHSU, Joel directs the ADHD program and the Division of Psychology in the Department of Psychiatry. His most recent books are Getting Ahead of ADHD and What Causes ADHD. Joel also does UCS the honor of serving on our National Advisory Board. I visited with Joel in Portland, Oregon a few months back, which is why there's a reference to blizzards, to chat about the emerging connection between heat waves and psychiatric problems, the stress of sea level rise, and why all of us at UCS who work on climate change might actually be in excellent mental health. So I'm here today with Dr. Joel Nick. Joel, welcome to the Got Science Podcast. Thank you. You're the first psychologist that we've had on the podcast, and given some of the worrisome topics we've covered, I'm surprised it's taken so long, but I'm very glad to be here with you. So you've been studying ADHD for more than 20 years. Has that been the main focus of your research during your career? Primarily, yes. I've studied a range of mental health disorders with child development and uh, attention problems and mood problems being the central focus. So what made you decide to branch out now into the mental health impacts of climate change? It kind of became an extension where I've been interested for a long time in what causes mental illness and mental health problems. We've done a lot of work on both genes and environments and really begun to move more and more into this area of social determinants. How does stress and poverty and conflict, uh, how do these things affect mental health? Do they affect ADHD? Do they affect child development? And climate change, it turns out, is another social determinant of health. And so it connects to all these other determinants. Everything else we study 
is also related to things in the environment that are affected by climate. So that caused me to get interested on the scientific side. And then I also have my own human concern as a citizen about what climate change is doing to our population. This is an opportunity to use my expertise to look at a particular aspect of that, which is how does it affect mental health and mental illness. So I haven't heard of anyone studying the mental health impacts of climate change. So is this a new field of study? I think it may be a field reaching a critical mass right now with with interest. A lot of this work is directly transferred from previous work on natural disasters because some of this is what do natural disasters do to mental health. We've had now studies on things like the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, for example. But there's also work directly on how people are mentally processing the news about climate change or their own observations about extreme weather and what that does to psychological adjustment. Climate change is gradual. It's ramping up now. And um, how does that aspect, or is it because people are becoming more aware of climate change because we're starting to see the effects of it, that it's having an impact on mental health? That's part of it. Part of what's happening is the scientific models and climate change side have gotten better. It's increasingly uh, possible for scientists to attribute the proportion of impact of a given problem coming from increased global temperatures or increased ocean acidification and so on. So how likely would Hurricane Katrina have been with atmospheric levels of carbon dioxide and methane being what they were 200 years ago versus what they are today, how likely would the massive migration patterns and refugee crises going on, and climate change and increased temperatures and so on becomes part of the picture to a degree that's increasingly able to be quantified. And that, I think, has raised the visibility of realizing these health effects, the health effects of increased disease vectors, increased infection rates, mosquitoes traveling further north, those health effects are fairly obvious and fairly measurable, directly related to increased temperatures and climate change. We've also got mental health effects that come from the steadily rising intensity of hurricanes or the, the rising frequency of 100-year floods and so on, which are a consequence, even though individual events are not as accurate as trends. There's still some attribution there. So we can now begin to imagine and see more clearly that these things are directly connected. And I think that increasing clarity of those models has made it more and more urgent to understand these effects. So how does climate change affect mental health and illness? Well, it has a lot of effects. Some, some of the effects are, are quote-unquote indirect, for example, through natural disasters, if you have increased intensity of a hurricane or increased probability of a major 100-year flood, then you have increased mental health effects from those disasters because we know a lot about the mental health effects of natural disasters. We know that after disaster like Katrina, you have an increase in depression, you have an increase in suicide attempts, you have an increase in conflict in families, you have an increase in anxiety, People who are prone to have a psychiatric breakdown are going to have the breakdown around events like this. We also know that those mental health consequences, whether it's stress, whether it's addiction and drug use, whether it's depression or suicide or suicide attempt, 
those effects are not short-lived. They don't go away when the media stops covering the, the storm. They persist for a long time. People stay down for a long time. Their mental health sacrifice or injury, if you will, endures for quite a period of time. And years later, they may still be suffering from this episode. So in that sense, we know we know a lot about that from natural disasters in general, as well as from disasters that have been partially attributed to increased global warming, such as Katrina. And so that's one set of effects is all these natural disaster effects. If we look globally, we have the mental health effects of being uprooted and migration and those kinds of things, again, from natural disasters and from other secondary causes. So what other kind of effects are there? Another kind of effect is from heat. We obviously have hotter weather, more heat waves. The extreme heat waves, as we all know, can cause people to die who are vulnerable, but they also cause vulnerable people to have psychiatric problems. Aggression and violence goes up in hot, very hot weather among those that are prone to that. Uh, suicide attempts go up. Particularly uh, notable is that uh, most psychiatric medications make people more heat sensitive because of the biology of those medications. So among the vulnerable populations that die in heat waves are those people who are, have psychiatric illness and are taking psychiatric medication. So there's a direct uh, serious consequence for that vulnerable population. So how can, how can individuals and communities prepare and respond to these events? A lot of this is preparation for extreme events, preparation for heat waves, preparation for floods or hurricanes, depending on where you live and what the risk is. The best preparation for communities, aside from trying to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and pollutions and working on those policies like we all obviously are worried about, is to build resilience in the community. And one of the best ways to do that is to build social networks. So build up in your church, in your neighborhood, build up relationships, plans, preparation for events, and in particular, pay attention to what is the preparation when an event occurs for the vulnerable members of the population, for kids, elderly, people with uh, psychiatric illness. Here where I live, we have a number of people living on the streets who have, some of whom have mental illness, but we also know ourselves and our communities who is vulnerable in terms of mental health and vulnerability. We don't always know who's going to be affected, though. And so if an event occurs, we're going to find that some of us who may not have expected to have a depressive episode or panic attacks may have that experience. And having the social circle be prepared to support that person is an important part of resilience. So a specific example might be in my community, we're preparing and the idea would be to make sure that you have or maintain a close connection with someone so you can observe them and see if they're struggling and step in to help them. Yes, exactly. Make sure to maintain close connections with those who seem vulnerable, but also with everyone because, again, we don't know which of us is going to feel vulnerable at the time. And maybe I'm speculating here, but one could imagine having a buddy system or a, a triple buddy system the two of us will check on you and the two of you will check on me and provide support if, if we're struggling. But taking seriously the, fa- the fact that just like physical health will be affected, mental health will be affected. Mm-hmm. 
And social support is one of the best ways to support mental health under a crisis. Is there a way or does it make a difference to you as a psychologist when somebody comes in that's having an issue? Is it important to know if it's from sort of a climate change related, I don't want to say disaster, but some sort of event? Will that um, make a difference in the way you treat someone? It's a really interesting question. You know, one of the things we don't know enough about right now, and I think is a real challenge for the profession, mental health profession, is the nonspecific effects on individuals in the population of the emotional climate of climate change, if you will. The sense of uncertainty, are we headed toward disaster? Uh, the confusingness of the intense, it's all become politicized. And so now the whole topic is stressful for many people because it's politicized as well as because they're worried about what's going to happen. Is Among young people, we certainly know there's a great deal of concern about their future given some of the forecasts of where we may be headed with climate and weather and viability of our communities. And so as a clinician, if someone is, is generally anxious or generally depressed or in despair existentially, do we need to sort out how much of this is due to emotional, social, political, intangible environment and how it's affecting people's sense of well-being? There is a small body of research on this, exploring a sense of despair or a sense of hopelessness about the world that people can get into. And obviously that can come from any number of sources and it can be distorted or it can be realistic. Part of mental health is being accurate about what's really happening. And so as mental health professionals, what is our obligation to help people get past their distorted perceptions about, which are, which are common because we have so much disinformation and unscientific assertions being made that confuse many people about what's really going on. You can't cope with something if you don't know what it really is. You can't cope with something if you're not sure of the reality. And so people need to grasp the reality in order to cope positively with it. I think there's considerable debate and discussion in the mental health professions now about what the responsibility is for mental health professionals in this regard, in relation to public education, scientific literacy, and so on. It, so the treatment may or may not be different. The content may be different if a person is reacting to a real threat to their future. I really am worried that we won't have a livable planet when my kids grow up versus an unreal threat. I really am worried about something that maybe is less likely to happen. Or maybe even when it comes to climate change, I'm not balancing my worry out very well. But how does that become factually based? It's not the job of the therapist to uh, be a climate expert but it is to help people cope with what's really going on. We'll be back in a minute with the second half of our interview. You're listening to the Got Science podcast, brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. Now, UCS loves scientists of all ages and stages. 
But for the month of August, we're showing extra love to early career scientists. Check out hashtag earlycareersci, that's S-C-I, for shoutouts, resources, and more. And now back to our interview. I'm imagining, as you're talking, I'm imagining someone living in Florida on the coast where there's a lot of talk about sea level rise mm -hmm. and that much of the coastline is going to be inundated with water and it's going to become unlivable. And I'm thinking with all the disinformation that's out there and the that political push and pull about climate change, that that almost gives you a, a double-sided mental health coin to, de for, to deal with. I think that's right. I think it can mess with people's minds and it can make it hard to cope and hard to know how to cope because it's hard to evaluate what you're dealing with. You don't have information that you know what to do with. Good information is available, like from the Union of Concerned Scientists. But if someone is confused about what's really going on and the environment is emotionally charged on top of that, so you can't find out without people getting upset, then it's a challenge to coping. And then how does a therapist help with that? I think that's a cutting edge area for the field, mental health field. If you were going to design a research project around this, what would you, what would you do? What would you? Well, there's so many areas where we, we need more knowledge. Um, I think one area that we certainly need knowledge on is resilience. Right now, we know a lot about resilience in general to disaster and both personal and community disaster. But as we think about preparing for the some of the consequences that are coming and they're already here, how do we build resilience specifically around climate change related events? One thing we haven't talked about yet is the uniqueness of climate disasters where the attribution of the cause is ambiguous. We don't, we know that human caused disasters like terrorist attacks and quote unquote natural disasters like floods create different attributions in, the, in our minds. We feel differently about them because their cause is different. And with climate change related events, a flood that, a hundred year flood that shouldn't be happening again two years later because it hasn't been a hundred years, but because the temperature's warmer, it is happening again, or a hurricane or a drought that's highly unusual and probably, probably or possibly or definitely whatever the odds are related to climate change. Now, how do we cope with that? Is that natural disaster? Is that a human caused? It becomes again, an ambiguous situation and ambiguity makes coping difficult. And so I think that in some ways we may be facing unique challenges to resilience and coping and mental health here that would be valuable to get more research and more study of to know what the most effective way to cope is. There's also, I think, room for a number of studies around how to help people overcome social conflict we, we around this area. We know a lot about the psychology of environmental protection. We know a lot about the psychology of ideology. How does extreme ideology form? Why are ideologies and political beliefs rigid? Why is it hard for people to take in information that's contrary to their current beliefs? We know a lot about those kind of cognitive traps that, that we all get into. We don't have a lot of research specifically on climate change, we have some, but probably need more in relation to all of this. 
it's not clear that all of the environmental research applies to climate change because it's been so politicized. It's not clear that all the ideology research applies because it's a real environmental unfolding problem. So I think all of that intersects in a unique way that, along with the scale of it, that, again, some of this research is happening, but the more of it, the better right now. As some of our longtime listeners know, I live in Hull, Massachusetts, which sits on the end of a peninsula. We've been experiencing the impacts of climate change with every storm that rolls in. And as we're taping this, there's another blizzard happening. And I'm seeing sea level rise firsthand. And it it is stressful. I'm fortunate to live up on a hill, but many, many people living in Hull are on or below sea level. So it, it floods a lot. So what advice do you have for me? Build your social support network locally. Build your neighborhood group. Build resilience in the community. Be fact-based. Respond to real, accurate information. The um, I think of the analogy, again, you brought up Miami earlier, where there's a great deal of controversy among political leaders, from what I understand, from what I've read, regarding climate change. But none of them are hesitating to use the scientific projections of sea level rise for planning city defenses against sea level rise. And so I kind of appreciate that approach where they can have partisan arguments over here, but when it comes to solving problems, they're gonna use scientific information about what the actual problem is. And I think that's healthy. It'd be maybe even healthier if they could set aside the partisan arguments entirely, but that's for them to decide. But I think um, for your community, to say it's a practical problem, let's look at the scientific evidence. And positive action is a great mental health response against any threat. Uh, Passivity tends to be discouraging. Mm -hmm. And so identifying as an individual and as a group, what positive action can we take? And I think that's why it's very mentally healthy, adaptive for people to work on positive policy around greenhouse gas emission reduction. That's positive action against this threat or this worry, it's very uh, healthy to say, well, we can prepare for the next flood or or the sea level rise by doing these actions as a group. That's very healthy from a mental health point of view because it's positive action on the problem. And the part that people get trapped in is that sense of despair or worry without positive action. And that's what becomes destructive to mental health. So I strongly encourage uh, people and individuals and as groups to build resilience networks to identify positive actions you can take. There are many available. Excellent. And how is your mental health doing? Mine is doing excellent. I have identified many positive actions and I've built a strong support network. That's excellent. And I'm paying a lot of attention to scientific information, so I'm well grounded in reality. And you have a fabulous dog, which also helps. And I have a fabulous dog, which also helps. <laughs> well, thank you, Joel. This has, been, um, this has been great. Good. And now, This Week in Science History with Katie Love. This Week in Science History, we look back to August 6, 1945, as the United States dropped the first atomic bomb on Hiroshima, Japan. It dropped a second bomb three days later on Nagasaki. And together, these two bombs killed several hundred thousand people. To this day, the United States remains the only country to have ever used a nuclear weapon against another country. 
Unfortunately, ongoing tensions with North Korea and Iran remind us that we are not yet out of the nuclear woods and that crises can still arise. This is especially true given the dangerous nuclear weapons policies the United States keeps in place. Whether it's keeping hundreds of nuclear weapons on hair trigger alert, thus increasing the chance of an accidental, unauthorized, or mistaken launch of nuclear weapons, or the fact that the United States keeps the option of using nuclear weapons first in a crisis, and the president has sole and absolute authority to order such a launch. That's why it's truly alarming to hear talk of creating a more usable nuclear weapon. In fact, the Trump administration's nuclear posture review from earlier this year outlined several dangerous and costly changes in U.S. nuclear weapons policy that will make nuclear war more likely and the United States and the entire world less safe. For instance, the administration wants to develop two types of new, more usable nuclear weapons on top of the seven we already have. They want to increase the number of scenarios in which the United States could start a nuclear war by using nuclear weapons first. And they want to spend $1.7 trillion over the next 30 years to rebuild the entire U.S. nuclear arsenal. Nuclear weapons don't make us safe, and we must do everything we can to prevent nuclear war. Go to ucsusa.org slash nuclear weapons to learn more and get involved by telling Congress to speak out forcefully against the president's plans for dangerous and costly changes in U.S. nuclear weapons policy that will make nuclear war more likely. Thanks, Katie. Well, that was then, and this is now. Hey, Shreya, can you remind me what month it is? Sure, Colleen. It's Early Career Scientist Month here at UCS, a.k.a. August. And since it's Early Career Scientist Month, can we take a moment to shout out some of the amazing scientists we know? Absolutely, let's do it. Okay. First, I want to shout out Dr. Marina Robinson-Snowden, a nuclear engineer and the first American-born woman of color to earn a PhD from the MIT Department of Nuclear Science and Engineering. Her doctoral research focused on finding unique ways to detect whether countries are living up to nuclear disarmament treaties. Dr. Snowden is a Stanton Nuclear Security Fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, where she works on nuclear arms control verification, non-proliferation, and modernization issues. Okay, my turn. Jesse Shanahan is an astrophysicist and contributing writer at Forbes and creator of the hashtag Disabled and STEM. She's a graduate researcher in astronomy and astrophysics at UC San Diego, studying active galactic nuclei. She's a dedicated advocate for accessibility and disability inclusion. Science is for everyone, she says. She also co-founded the Working Group on Accessibility and Disability for the American Astronomical Society, and she serves on the leadership board of 500 women scientists. Can I do one more? Absolutely. Okay. Priya Shukla is a climate scientist studying ongoing changes to our oceans at the Bodega Marine Lab at the University of California, Davis. While her research focuses mainly on how climate change affects species such as shellfish and seagrass, she also works to help people living on the coast understand how climate change will affect their lives and livelihoods. She recognizes that working on climate change also means working on social justice. And she's passionate about elevating the voices of marginalized people within science and outside of science. Well, kudos all around to these amazing scientists. And they're just getting started. 
I'm excited to see what they'll accomplish throughout their careers, and I hope at some point to get them on the Got Science podcast. So, Shreya, remind me how we know all these folks. Well, Colleen, they're all members of the Science Network, which is the UCS community of over 24,000 scientists, engineers, uh, public health officials, and other experts who want to use their expertise to make a difference. Science Network members have raised their hand to get more involved outside their labs and offices. They work to educate people about science, they lend their scientific credentials to community groups that might need them, and they advocate for the role of science in our democracy. All right, well, happy Early Career Scientist Month. UCS is celebrating all of you who use the power of science to make positive change. What's that hashtag again? Hashtag Early Career Sci. Thanks, Colleen. Thanks, Shreya. Well, that's it for this episode of Got Science. Special thanks to Dr. Joel Nigg. This Week in Science History was brought to you by Katie Love. Editing by Omari Spears. Music by Brian Middleton. Writing and research by Pamela Worth. Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. Thanks, and see you next time.